Let me pray again, and then let's turn to the Lord's Word in Romans chapter 1. Father, even in the quiet of these moments, we, we're quiet because we're ready for you to speak through your word. Holy Spirit, we long for you to bring your truth to bear in our hearts individually and together as a church family. We ask that you would move with power this morning to instruct, to confront, to comfort, and to show mercy. Lord Jesus, we look to you this morning. We pray these things in your name. Amen. One of my children quipped to me this week that the life of squirrels must be so awesome. Their reason? They don't seem to have parents around giving them instructions. <laughs> is authority good or is authority bad? In a generation where examples of bad authority abound, we may be tempted to skepticism about all authority. But the opposite of bad authority is not no authority. The opposite of bad authority is good authority. Life without a king may seem attractive, but in reality, it produces agony. And I don't think I'm overstating that. Imagine Christmas morning in a home full of young children without parental authority. Or, more seriously, to the savage treatment of innocent life when states fail and anarchy rules. The opposite of bad authority isn't no authority, it is good authority. Good human authority leads to blessing, protection, prospering, ordering, and the flourishing of all those who fall underneath that good authority. And good human authority reflects God's good divine authority. Because like it or not, God reigns in authority over us. And I hope that by the end of this morning, if you don't already think of that as good, you will. God's designs, His structures, His laws are for our good. He is a good king. The question is, what will we do with His authority? We've just spent two weeks in our Advent series looking at the future, looking at the coming of Christ the King and looking at the eternal kingdom that He will establish. A few weeks ago, a few months ago, Alex Louises put together this Advent series, and he has us two weeks in the future, and now two weeks in the present, trying to grapple with what it looks like in the present for us to see Christ as King. Next week, we'll see what it looks like to accept Jesus' kingship, even now while he reigns at his Father's right hand. But this week, we're looking at what it, what it is to reject Jesus in the present, to reject him as our King. And we're asking the question, what is life like now when we reject Jesus as our king? Here's the main idea. Rejecting Jesus as king leads to God's wrath or God's anger, and it leads to our agony. 
Yes, those things will be true in the future, but they're also true now, which is part of what Romans 1 helps us to see. Romans 1 helps us to feel the fearsome consequences of rejecting Jesus as king even now in this life. It helps us to see the agony of worshiping and serving something in creation, making something in creation our king instead of the creator. And Romans 1 urges us to turn and to worship and serve Jesus as our king. So let's begin in verses 15 through 17 of Romans chapter 1, where we see that the gospel can save anyone. And because the gospel can save anyone, Paul writes in verse 15 of Romans chapter 1, I am eager to preach the gospel in Rome. Paul has preached the gospel all over the Roman Empire, but he has yet to step foot in Rome and preach the gospel there. Now, he's writing to Christians who are in Rome, so the church already exists, but Paul longs to lend his voice to the gospel proclamation that's happening in Rome because he knows what will happen when he does. Look at verse 16 of Romans 1. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek or to the Gentile or to those who are not Jew. Paul is unashamed of the gospel because Paul knows that the gospel can save anyone. And so he proclaims it boldly. He doesn't care if some find the gospel message weak and foolish. He doesn't care if he will suffer for the gospel. He is eager to preach the gospel and he preaches it in an unashamed way because he knows that the gospel the message that Jesus died for our sins and that he rose again to deliver eternal life to us, he knows what will happen when that message is preached. And he knows that that message is God's power unto salvation, that that message is the pulsating, transforming power of God for salvation. He knows that the Spirit takes the simple words of the gospel and gives them life and makes them effective. And Paul knows that this power is unleashed on everyone who believes, Jew and Gentile. God's mercy can melt the hardest, most rebellious heart, and it will gather people from every possible background together around this message. Now, belief is what qualifies everyone, everyone who believes. Now, if belief is a critical ingredient, then what exactly is belief? Belief in the first place is mental assent. It is hearing the facts of the gospel and believing them to be true. But it's more than just mental assent. It's leaning on that truth. It's relying upon that truth. It's not just knowing that the truth is true. It's relying upon it. I need to be made right with God, and I am made right with God not because of my own righteousness, but because of what Christ has done on my behalf. And there's a commitment to that message, to live according to it, to be reliant upon it and dependent upon it. Belief starts with mental assent, but it leads to reliance and commitment. And Paul is eager and he's unashamed because he knows what the gospel can do to hardened sinners like him. Paul himself has experienced God's astounding, confounding grace that turns up into down. He knows what will happen when the people of Rome hear the gospel ring in their ears. 
He's been around long enough to know that some will reject the message out of hand as foolish and weak. But he also knows that some who hear it will believe, that the Holy Spirit will open their hearts to believe the truth that Paul and others are proclaiming, just like Lydia in Philippi. And they will be saved, Jew and Gentile, men and women, young and old, educated and uneducated, rich and poor. They will hear the gospel and it will become to them the power of God unto salvation. Now in verse 17, Paul gives us some work to do. Look at verse 17. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. If you open a commentary on Romans, you'll see a lot of ink spilled on verse 17. It's confusing. It's hard to understand exactly what Paul is saying here. But we need to begin by understanding that the it here is referring to the gospel. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. For in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. It's on display. D.A. Carson writes, God does what's right or acts to put things right. God saves us in a way that is righteous, and the gospel reveals God's righteousness. He acts toward us in a way that is right and good and holy. He does not wink at our sin. Our sins do not vanish into thin air. Instead, the consequence and the penalty that we needed to pay for our sin, God paid instead. God the Father poured out His anger against His beloved, precious Son so that we are able to experience freedom. Freedom from sin's penalty and also to receive the adoption of sons and daughters. He pulls us right into a relationship with Himself. Sinners, sin is paid for. Sinners are freed. And we are united to Him with the faith or the belief that we just described. And so my first question for you this morning is, do you believe that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation? If you're a Christian and you believe that the gospel message is powerful, then you will spread the seed of the gospel broadly. You won't make a prejudgment about the person across from you and whether or not they'll receive this message or not. You will trust that the Spirit will work through the preaching of the Word, the proclamation of the Word. And so you will seek to be clear and faithful to the message of the gospel. And you will trust the Spirit to work through that proclamation. And this should also lead us to come. Knowing that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation, it should invite us to come or come again this morning. To understand that no matter how your sin has worn you out, no matter how discouraged and despairing you are over your sin this morning as you're sitting in that seat or as I am standing here, this is a promise that we cannot disqualify ourselves from this prize. You can't do anything to set yourself outside of the bounds of God's mercy. He comes to us with mercy in His eyes. He's coming for us and you cannot disqualify yourself. Romans is written by the same apostle who writes 1 Timothy 1.15, where Paul says the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners 
of whom I am the foremost. Friend, your sins may be many like mine, but his mercy is more. Who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. God does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion upon us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. He will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. The gospel can save anyone, everyone who believes. Now, verses 18 through 20, we see that we're all without excuse. We see that God's wrath is revealed. It's made evident. It's put on display. And we, Paul says, in the power of God's Spirit, we are without excuse or defense. We are defenseless. We are inexcusable. And he gives two reasons for this. The first reason we are without excuse is found in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. God's wrath is revealed. It's put on display in the first place because we suppress the truth. We bind it. We arrest it. It's not a matter of not knowing that the truth is true. We know the truth is true. We just ignore it. We push it down. We cover it up. We lock it up. And we suppress it. We ignore it. And God says because of that, we're without excuse. And therefore, the wrath of God is revealed against everyone. What is God's wrath? God's wrath is God's personal anger against sin. Scottish pastor John Murray writes that God's wrath is the holy revulsion of God being against that which contradicts His holiness. Paul refers to our sin here in verse 18 as ungodliness and as unrighteousness, and he says God's wrath is revealed against those things. And make no mistake, you want God angry against sin. We desperately need God to be angry against sin. John Stott offers a warning that we should not confuse God's wrath with our own wrath. God's anger has no mixture of sin. It is completely righteous, and I would wager that we very rarely, if ever, see this kind of anger. God doesn't fly off the handle. God is not personally offended. God reacts against sin and unrighteousness, and we need Him to do so. You may not respect God's anger against drunkenness or lying, but you do appreciate God's anger against abuse or against the exploitation of children. You would rejoice over a judge who acts faithfully in the face of such situations. Gone are the days in our culture when there is no place for absolute truth. 
We used to hear that there is no room for absolute truth, but that is a distant memory. We live in a world of moral absolutes. There is a right and there is a wrong, and there are consequences for trespassing. This is what cancel culture is. We just want to be the judge of who determines the standards. Don't we? We want to be the ones who have control of the steering wheel, who determine what is morally right and what is morally wrong. But we don't determine for God what He should be for and what He should be against. This really is a key takeaway from Romans chapter 1. It's that the Creator, God, sets the standard for what is right and what is wrong. God tells us what is beautiful and what is dangerous. God tells us what is life-giving and what is life-taking. God tells us what is satisfying and whole and pure and ordered and magnificent. And God's righteousness is revealed in His expectations of us. He has told us in His Word what is true. And He has faithfully told us in His Word what will occur if we reject Jesus as King. And notice that it's not just that God's wrath will come in the future. It's that God's wrath is revealed now. Yes, it will exist in the future, but it's also in front of us now. We can see it. It's being revealed to us, and we'll see in a moment how. But in the first place, God's wrath is revealed against us because we suppress the truth. We know what's true, and we suppress it. But in verses 19 through 20, we also see that we're without excuse because God's existence is obvious to us. Look at verse 19 of Romans chapter 1. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For God's invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, they've been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. Commentator David Stern says that it takes effort for us to ignore God. It takes effort for us sinners to ignore God. His personal attributes may be invisible, but they are clearly perceived and they have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. It's obvious to every human being that standing behind creation is a powerful creator. There is a powerful creator who upholds and sustains and creates that oceans are created by one more powerful than them, that sunsets have been created by one more beautiful than them. And it's obvious to everyone, every human being, that the Creator is God, not just that there is a Creator, but that that Creator is God. I'm not saying this. God is saying this about humanity, that we all know, even if we suppress it, we all know that there is a Creator and we know that that Creator has divine attributes, that He must be God. Now, some of us have rejected that truth for so long that we may not even realize that we're suppressing it. But God says that we are. He says that there's a Creator, there's a Designer, and when we drink in creation deep in our souls, we know that there's someone who stands behind creation, and that someone is God. Now, that does not mean that that information can save you, that that information can make you right with God. That's not what Romans 1 is saying. 
Romans 1 is saying that you are without excuse because of that information, that you know this to be true and you suppress it. Romans 1 says you're without excuse. It does not say you are saved. This is why Paul is so eager to go to Rome to preach the gospel. This is why he's working so hard to see the gospel go to the very ends of the earth. There's a difference between what can be generally known about God in creation and what we must know about God to be saved. And this is why missionary efforts exist. This is why we are still eager for the gospel to powerfully save the lost. Now, I know this is heavy for a Christmas message. You can thank Alex Louisus who assigned me this passage. But without excuse is without excuse. It is indefensible. It is inexcusable. And if you're resisting and rejecting Christ as king this morning, then the sharp edge of this passage is that God has put you on notice. He's put all of us on notice. One day, we will all stand before God and we will give an account for our lives and for our rejection or trust in Christ. And Romans 1 says, you stand before God without excuse. Here's Romans 2, verse 5. Because of your hard and impenitent hearts, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works, to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking, those who don't obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. In God's mercy, and it may not feel like mercy, but in God's mercy, he's told us what will happen in the future. And by telling us what will happen in the future, there is an opportunity for us to turn. There's an opportunity for us to acknowledge Jesus as king, to stop suppressing the truth and instead to embrace that truth, to turn from our insistence on drafting the rules of the game on our own. God has made a way for us to return. Actually, God has come to seek us. Our God leaves the 99 in the field and he goes for the one who's caught in the thorns. He's come for us who are sick and understand that we need a doctor. He's come for us who know that we're blind and we need to see. That's the God of the Bible. He comes for us. He tells us the truth about where we stand, and then he comes for our rescue. That's what we're celebrating at Christmas. And when he finds us caught in those thorns, he rescues us from our own sin. He scoops us up and he carries us back. Romans 3 says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, that is a satisfaction by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance, His divine patience, He had passed over former sins. And it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. He wants to provide your rescue this morning. Turn to him.
In verses 21 to 25, we read of the, how our rejection of Christ as king, if we reject him as king, how that reveals God's anger and our agony, not just in the future, but it's revealed now in the present. The rejection of King Jesus brings agony. Look at verses 21 through 23. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. If you're not a follower of Jesus this morning, I understand that these verses are throwing some significant punches. But if it's true then let the punches fall because we desperately need this information. Though they knew God, they didn't honor him as God. Therefore, their thinking became futile. Without God, they can't understand the world. It's empty and vain. Their thinking is empty and vain. And that includes all of us Christians. Before we came to faith in Christ, this was true of us. And if you are not yet in Christ, God says this is true of you even now. And therefore, their foolish hearts became darkened. Isaiah 5 puts it this way. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. Beware of that. Those who reject King Jesus are driven by passions that seem so compelling and attractive in the moment. But there's no governor There's no direction. There's only appetite. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, animals, creeping things. Notice here that worship continues. Whether Jesus is your king or something else in creation is your king, worship continues. Every person who demands to be heard in the public square today is worshiping and serving something. We're all constrained. We're either driven by King Jesus' ways or something of our own design, a worldview or our perspective that we made in creation. This is why it's a bit hypocritical to tell Christians to leave their biblical grid out of public discourse. Because every single person is bringing their grid, their God, into the public discussions of our day. Whether that God is outside creation as creator or something that we've made and fashioned for ourselves. And here's why it's such agony to reject Jesus as king. Any of us who have struggled with substance abuse or some kind of addictive behavior to medicate stress or disappointment or fear or failure or anxiety. We know something. We know that when we put our hope in something other than God, we end up being owned by our idols. We end up being controlled by that thing. It's not as if we worship and serve Jesus or nothing. We are worshiping and serving Jesus or something in our own making, and that thing will control us. We end up enjoying and delighting in creation instead of enjoying and delighting in creation the way that God intended, right? It's a good gift. We end up using it to be a God for us. We use something in creation to calm our fears or to excite our lives, and that created thing ends up dictating to us. 
It becomes our functional king, and we're not happier as a result. We're aimless, we're searching, we're famished. Creation is a terrible taskmaster. God invites us to serve and worship Him instead and to have our souls cleansed and satisfied in Him. Rejection of Jesus in this life leads to this kind of agony, an unsatisfying worship of something in creation rather than the Creator Himself. But rejection of King Jesus also brings God's anger toward us now. It begins to reveal God's anger, and that's the point of verses 24 and 25. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth of about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. This is the revealing of God's anger. It's as if God gives us a preview of what life will be like when we reject him as king. We begin to experience in this life a taste of what we will experience forever if we reject him as our king. All passion, but no love. All hunger, but no fulfillment. All pursuit, but no satisfaction. God pulls himself away and gives us the opportunity to worship and serve something else beside him. And in so doing, he gives us an opportunity to turn and to be satisfied in him alone to not be exchange the truth about God for a lie, but to worship and serve the Creator who is blessed forever. Now, I said in the beginning that I don't think agony is too strong of a word to describe what life is like with no king. In the next verse after our passage, which was selected months ago, Paul describes how rejection of Jesus plays itself out in our sexuality. It does not only play out in our sexuality, as the long and varied list of sins in 29 through 31 makes clear. Let me just read this so we don't have our vision eclipsed. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, they are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. There's a long list of sins, but I want to focus for a minute where Paul focuses in verses 26 through 27. Paul begins by using sexual sin to illustrate what happens when we reject Jesus as the king, when the lusts of our hearts and the dishonoring of our bodies rule the day. All appetite, no constraint. And this may speak to our current moment. Sex is a gift that God has given to humanity. It provides pleasure, it strengthens a relational bond, and sometimes it leads to procreation. This is not perfect. This is not a gift that is perfect because of the fall, but God as a creator of this good gift tells us how it is to be enjoyed. God, before legislative bodies or courts or politics, before they were even in existence, he tells us how he designed this as a good gift for humanity. Here's Jesus in Mark 10 summarizing Genesis 1 and 2. 
But from the beginning, Jesus says, of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. And what therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Fire can provide light and heat and energy when it is contained. Fire can also be deadly, and it can destroy when it is unfettered. God places this good gift within the context of the lifelong commitment of one man and one woman. And when it's there, when it's constrained according to the design that God has put in place, it provides greater pleasure, stronger bonds, and a flourishing environment for children to be raised in. Now, I think we would find that in every culture, every culture that has existed in history has shrugged off God's good design for this good gift. They have taken this element of God's creation and have elevated it above the Creator. They've suppressed the truth, perverting what is scientifically and biologically and genetically obvious. They have distorted and told a lie about God's design. And in so doing, they have worshiped the creation rather than the Creator. Now, what we are seeing in our generation is not new to history, but that doesn't make it less tragic because this experiment will lead to the destruction of hearts and bodies and lives. And if we understand what God has said about what is coming in the future, then our hearts will be compelled to speak in love about what we must hold fast to as his people. If we love our neighbors, then we will hold fast to this truth of God's design. Those who press this revolution in our generation are worshiping a king of their own making. And we who accept Jesus as king must be ready to bear a cost, to lovingly stand for the truth of the Bible. Our motive is the repentance of our neighbors. And that is somewhat lost on the church. But our goal in this discussion is the repentance of our neighbors. We're longing for them to experience the same grace that we have tasted. And that means that gentleness as we speak and the courage to speak are not in contradiction with one another. And we must be ready to pick up the pieces of the lives destroyed by this devastating experiment. And if you're tempted to compromise to the roaring demands of this moment, please know that it will not stop here. We need to side with the king. We need to trust the king's wisdom. We need to rely upon the power of the gospel for salvation. And we need to love our neighbors by standing with King Jesus. Now, a word, we're all sexually broken. We've all experienced the fall in this area. We are all in need of God's grace. In this family, you can surface your attractions, your dysphoria, or your addictions. And when you surface those, you will find a church family ready to get under that load with you seeking to be faithful to the designs that Jesus has. 
King Jesus will lead us. Rejoice that his ways are good and right, that his power is unending, and we will stand with you and bear your burdens as you walk through this, seeking to honor Christ in this area of your life. Now, the agony and anger that accompany our rejection of Jesus as king don't have to be the end of the story. Instead, we can reject the misery of sourcing our joy and life outside of God, and we can turn to him, and we can accept Jesus as our king and watch the agony and anger be displaced by God's mercy and his goodness. I'm going to end with Psalm 98. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. God has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel, and all the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we... We trust your plans and designs. We long to be useful to our neighbors, to love them well by representing you well, both in how we speak and in what we say. Holy Spirit, empower us to live lives according to your truth, to love your truth, and to love those we've been called to proclaim. And we pray these things in your name. Amen.